Well, we have reached the end of Ephesians 3. We've reached the end of Ephesians 3. And if you'll remember, we talked about this book being divided into basically two halves. The first half of the book of Ephesians is about orthodoxy. The second half is about orthopraxy. The first half is about right believing, and the second half is about right behaving. The first half lays a theological foundation upon which we build in the second half toward our obedience to God. And so the idea in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 is that we get a picture of who God is, we get a picture of what salvation is, we get a picture of what it means to be in relationship with God, and in chapter 4 we get our responsibilities as a result of what we now know and understand and as a result of what God has accomplished in us. Now the good news is when you look at the first three chapters of Ephesians you come away understanding that what's required of us beginning in Ephesians chapter 4 through Ephesians chapter 6 we can't do. Amen. We, we can't do it. So I, I want to say that before we even get to chapter 4. We cannot do what is required of us in Ephesians chapter 4. And these first three chapters have been marvelous. They have been wonderful. I mean, we have been lifted to higher heights as we've heard this doctrinal teaching. In the next three chapters, the Bible will whip us up one side and down the other in Ephesians chapter 4 through chapter 6. And it's going to get every one of us. Because sure, as sure as you come in here one week, and Ephesians 4 is talking about some area where you're strong. You'll puff your chest out, and the next week it will talk about an area where you're weak, and you'll go right back down. Because all of us have areas in our lives that need to be chiseled away. Every last one of us. But before we get to the second half of this book, he ends with a prayer. In fact, Paul looked at that prayer on last week. And then there is a word of praise, or a doxology. Um, the Greek word doxa is the word for praise uh, or glory. Um, and of course logos means word. So a word of praise. It's like you go to a funeral and there's a eulogy. Um, that, that Greek prefix you, that means good. Logos for word. There is a good word spoken about the deceased. That's what the word eulogy means. Doxology means a word of praise. And so at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul gives us a word of praise. He closes his prayer with a word of praise to God. As though he's saying, here are all of the things that God is, and all of the things that God has done, and praise God for all that he is and for all that he has done. And then chapter 4 and verse 1, he begins with, therefore. Okay? But he ends with this doxology. Now, it's ironic because oftentimes doxology is found at the end of a letter. For example, turn to Jude, if you will. Jude. Jude is right before Revelation. It's the second to the last book in the Bible. Don't ask what chapter. And here's a doxology. Some of your Bibles may even have the word doxology over uh, verse 24 um, as a division of this passage, as a division of this text. But it's sort of the last word, and it's a word of praise that he ends with. 
And listen to what he says here, and then we'll go back and look at Ephesians 3 and look at the similarities. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And so there's a word of doxology, something that you would expect to find at the end of a book. And now we look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, and we find a doxology. Because he's making a definite shift between the first three chapters and the last three chapters. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Sounds like the end of a letter. Sounds like he's finished. Sounds like it ought to be the end of the epistle. There ought to be first Ephesians and then second Ephesians. And so this ought to be the end of first Ephesians. And it's that distinct. The difference between the first half and the second half of Ephesians is that distinct. And as we come to the end of this first half, and as he prays this prayer and offers this doxology, I, I, I uh, had to bring in a, a, a quote from A.A. Uh, a. Hodge. In his commentary on Ephesians, when he gets to this part, he says, Paul's prayer had apparently reached a height beyond which neither faith nor hope uh, nor even, even imagination could go. And yet he is not satisfied. Much still lay in the future. God was able to do not only what he had asked, but infinitely more than Paul knew either to ask or think. I love that. He's come to a point in his prayer where words are no longer enough. And in fact, one of the words that he used is, is sort of a double superlative. As a matter of fact, in your Bible, there when it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than. That to do far more abundantly than is one word in the Greek. It's one very large Greek verb. And it means he is more able to do more abundantly than more than anything. Uh, you, you, can't, you can barely put into English the strength of the superlative that he uses there in the Greek, referring to what God is able to do. Interestingly enough, though, we begin in the next verse, in verse 21, with what he's talking about, the point that he's making. And he's talking about glory to God, bringing glory to God, praising God. How do we bring glory to God? How do we praise God? That's the question that we have to ask. What does it mean to praise God? What does it mean to bring glory to God? What does that mean to you? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to Grace Family Baptist Church? How do we bring glory to God as a body of believers? How do we bring praise to God as a body of believers? We have an inkling here, a bit of insight. And it begins there in verse 21. To Him be glory. To whom? Well, he's pointing back to verse 20. So verse 20 is all about explaining who the him is in verse 21. To him be glory. And who's the him? To him, verse 20, who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work within us. 
That's the hymn. And so first of all, we bring glory to God by being God-centered and by acknowledging God for who God is and for what God has done. That's how we bring glory to God. And look at what he does. He says, first of all, he talks about the ability of God. To him who is able, God can. No matter what the question, if the question is, can God, you fill in the blank. The answer is yes, God can. God can do whatever God wants to do. That's what it means to be God. You know, sometimes uh, in theology classes, you know, we used to have all these debates and these discussions. You know, can God make a rock too big for him to move? People thought they were slick. Can God make a rock too big for him? If the answer to the question is yes, then that means God can make a rock that's bigger than his own ability. If the answer to the question is no, then that means God doesn't have the ability to make that kind of rock. They think they're all slick. The answer to the question is, God can do whatever God wants to do. Can God make a rock too big for God to be able to move it? The answer is, if God wanted a rock to be unmovable, he'd make an unmovable rock. Period. End of discussion. Because he's God, he can do whatever he wants to do. But do we believe that? Do we really believe that? Or do we believe that there are some things that are beyond God? Be honest with yourself now. Be honest with yourself. Because if we're honest with ourselves, each and every one of us would have to admit that there have been times in our life when we felt silly about praying for something because we didn't believe that God could do it. Or perhaps we didn't believe that it was within the realm that God works. Perhaps we believed that it was so small and so insignificant that that wasn't the kind of thing that you would go to God and bother Him about. Or perhaps we believed that somehow, somehow, that there are certain things that are beyond God because they're in the realm of science. And so we go to our physician and the physician tells us, this is the answer. This is your problem, and there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing anybody can do about it. And we hear that from the physicians, and in our flesh, because of the way we've been conditioned by our culture, we believe in the complete and utter deity and omnipotence of medical science. So when they say, nothing can be done, we say, amen, it's over. Because we believe that there are some things... That are too big for God. Oh, yeah. over here in this realm, God can work. But once the doctors have spoken, you better ask again. <laughs> you better ask again. Because every physician, at some point in his medical practice, has had to eat those words. Every physician, if he's been practicing long enough, has had to scratch his head and say, Well, we really can't explain this one. I've been there. We've walked through the valley of the shadow of death on a number of occasions and had that word that there's nothing that we can do about this. And we've heard the explanation. Well, we really can't explain this. I remember at one point hearing a doctor say, well, the tests that we took before must not have been accurate. Because if the tests that we took before were accurate, then there's no way that what we diagnosed could have ever been fixed. So the problem must have been with the tests. No, brother. 
problem was with sex. The problem is you have no idea that there's a physician that's greater than you. Amen? And that nothing is final until that physician says so. But do we believe that? Do we believe that we serve a God who is that able? Relational problems in your life. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God is that able when marriages are in the pits? Do we believe that? Do we believe that God is that able when our children have gone astray? Do we believe that God is that able? Or do we simply say, perhaps this is an area where either God is not interested or God is not able. Look at what Paul says. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly than all. More abundantly than all. Here's the good news. Regardless of what side of the spectrum that you're on, if you're an individual who's over here and you doubt the ability of God, then God is able to do far more abundantly than you think God's able to do. But here's the better news. Even if you're one over here and you think that you're a person of great faith because of all of the things that you believe God can do and you know God to do, He's still able to do more abundantly than the people with the greatest amount of faith in this room can even believe Him for or ask for or even think about. There's stuff that God is able to do that you don't even have sense enough to believe. Amen. That's what the text says. Look at what it says again. More abundantly than all we ask or think. So whatever it is you think God can do, there's some stuff that God can do that you haven't even thought of yet. There's some stuff God can do that you don't even have the ability to conceive of. Is that not incredible? That's the God whom we serve. And so praising God begins with understanding who this God is whom we serve. Praising God begins with coming to God and saying, no matter what I believe about God, no matter what I'm able to trust God for, this God is far more abundantly able than anything I can imagine, anything I can think, or anything that I have the guts to ask Him for. You know the story. I love that story. I heard a preacher preach on them one time, you know, the, the, the three Hebrew boys. And, you know, his outline, it, it wasn't original. But I'll never forget it, you know. They're supposed to bow down when they hear the music. And they don't. They hear the music and everybody bows down. They don't bow down. And they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, I'm going to give you one more chance to bow down. And you don't bow down, I'll throw you into the fiery furnace. And they throw them into the fiery furnace. And the preacher's outline was, they didn't bow. They didn't bend. Then they didn't burn. Amen. They didn't bow down before the statue. They come before the king and they get another opportunity. They don't bend. Not even standing before the king. He throws them in the fire and they don't burn. When they threw him in though, when he threw them in rather, what did they say to him? They said to the king, Bless you brother, you do whatever you have to do. But our God, even if he doesn't deliver us, he is able to deliver us. That's important, folks. Because here's the mistake that we sometimes make. If God didn't do it, he must not have been able to. That's the mistake that we sometimes make. 
And so when something happens in our life, here's the way we, here's the way we act toward God. I am a good person, and I go to church, and because I'm a good person, and I go to church, and I put a little money in now and then, then when terrible things happen, and I come to God, God is supposed to look on me and say, you know what, I've seen your attendance record, you're a good person, I'm going to take care of that. That's how we believe. That's what we believe toward God. So when something terrible happens in our life, and we pray to God for that something terrible not to happen, and it actually does occur, then immediately we believe that either number one, something is wrong with our relationship with God that we weren't aware of, or number two, God wasn't interested in us enough to do that, or number three, He just wasn't powerful enough to get that done. When the answer is actually number four. The sovereign God of the universe must not have needed to do that. There must be some other way that God is going to be glorified. Now, He didn't need that for His ultimate glory. That's hard for us to grasp. Because we would like to think that whatever's best for us, it's got to be best for God. I mean, really, we would like to think that. I mean, come on now, if God's going to be glorified in my life, then that must mean that God's going to give me a lot of stuff that I really like so I can brag on how good God's been to me. Uh, wouldn't that bring him glory? I mean, wouldn't that, come on now. And after all, I'm a good person. I love the Lord. I serve the Lord. Are you, are you better than his disciples? Closer to Jesus than Peter, Andrew, Bartholomew. Are you closer to Jesus than Thomas? Are you closer to Jesus than any one of those men? Because here's a newsflash. Here's how they died. One was beaten to death with a branch from an olive tree. One was beheaded. A couple boiled in oil. One stoned to death. Thomas, I believe, was run through with a spear. John, the beloved disciple, he starved to death on the island of Patmos. So evidently, being close to Jesus doesn't guarantee ease for the rest of your life. Evidently, God can be glorified even in tragedy in your life. Therefore, regardless of whether or not God did what you thought God needed to do, He was still able. We've got to hold on to that. Otherwise, we don't properly glorify God. Because if we only praise God when He does what we want Him to do, then guess what? We're no longer God-centered. Now we're man-centered and we're me-centered. And so we say, God, I praise you because I asked you to do something and you did it. And then if he doesn't, we say, God, I curse you because I asked you to do something and you did not do it. Because we want omnipotence without sovereignty. We want God to be omnipotent. Meaning we want a God who can do anything. But we don't want that God to be sovereign. Because we want him only to use his omnipotence to satisfy us. 
whether he does what I want him to or not, he's able. And he's worthy of my praise. He's worthy of our praise because he is able. Look at verse 21 again. To him be glory. You see that. First of all, look at the directions here. To him be glory in the church. To him be glory in the church. And so, as a church, we are to give glory to God. Now, if you look in your worship order this morning, I want you to look back at the catechism that we used for this morning. And it goes back to the second commandment. The second commandment has to do with no graven images and not worshiping idols. But what's the significance of that? What does the second commandment require? Great question here in the Catechism. The second commandment requires us to receive, respectfully perform, and preserve completely and purely all the regulations for religion and worship that God has established in His Word. And so according to the second commandment, the way we're supposed to worship God should be the way that God tells us to worship Him in His Word. So if we're going to bring glory to God in the church, we must worship God the way God says we worship Him. Now here's the negative side of it. What does the second commandment forbid? The second commandment forbids our worshiping God with images or in any other way not established in His Word. That's where we often fall off the wagon. What does the second commandment tell us to do? The second commandment says, worship God the way God says in His Word that He's supposed to be worshipped. What does the second commandment forbid? If He doesn't say that's the way you're supposed to worship Him, then don't worship Him like that. Some folks have asked why we don't have you know, drama or anything like that. We've had this discussion before. We wouldn't do that. Why? Because the Bible does not tell us to worship God with drama. Which would mean it'd be a violation of the second commandment for us to bring that in if God didn't clearly in his word tell us that that's the way it's to be worshipped. God's sovereign. God wants us to worship him a certain way. He'll tell us how he wants to be worshipped. And he has told us in his word how he wants to be worshipped. And if we're to bring glory to God in the church, then here's what we do. We do what God tells us to do, and we don't do what God didn't tell us to do. Simple. It's simple. Yes, but people like some of those things that we do that are not outlined in the Scripture. Guess where we just went back to? Man-centered versus God-centered. It's a very simple issue. Do we worship God in accordance with what we think is best, what we think is most productive, what we think is most attractive, what we think is most desirable, or do we actually believe in the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture? If we believe in the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture, then we worship God in the church the way God has said the church is to worship Him. And we don't worship God in the church in ways that God has not said that we're to worship Him. To Him be glory in the church. To God be the glory in the church. Not to anyone else. God does not share His glory. God will not share His glory with another. To Him be glory in the church question is always raised when I talk to people about that issue. And that principle is called the regulated principle. Those of you who have been through membership classes, you know we've talked about the regulated principle. 
and when I talk to people about the regulated principle, you know, one of the issues that's always raised is, well, there are some things that, you know, that, that God sort of used in my life <laughs> that you're saying, you know, shouldn't necessarily be part of what we do when we worship God. I mean, God has used that stuff, and I, 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 I was ministered to by some of that stuff. Well, that goes back to the ability of God. God is able to do far more abundantly beyond anything that we could ask or even think, which means that God can even take our polluted efforts and use them to bring glory and honor to himself. I was brought up in a single-parent home, raised by a single teenage mother who did the best she could with what she had, who was a Buddhist. I didn't grow up going to church. I didn't grow up in the church, and God used that. But does that mean that I am going to promote single parenthood as a means of ultimately getting people into whatever God wants them to get? No, I would never do that. I would never do that. Can God use it? Absolutely. But does the fact that God has used it, in spite of it being erroneous, mean that it is to therefore be accepted and used and promoted and praised. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. God is to be glorified in the church. Look at the next part of the text. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. That phrase, in Christ, is used 76 times in the New Testament. Almost exclusively by Paul. And we've seen it used numerous times here in the book of Ephesians. That, 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 that God has done all of these things and given us all of these things in Christ Jesus. And we have been seated in the heavens in Christ Jesus. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. In Colossians he says that in Christ the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in bodily form. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 he says that, that God was in Christ reconciling mankind to himself in Christ. And so here's the idea. We bring glory to God. All glory and honor is to be to God. All glory and honor is to be to God in my individual life, in your individual life. All glory and honor is to be to God in the church. And all glory and honor is to be to God in Christ Jesus. Because Christ is the final and ultimate revelation of God. And so when we want to know what God is like, we look to the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is God personified for us in flesh. And so we glorify God in general, but more specifically, when we want to bring glory and honor to God, we look to the person of Jesus Christ. And so now, we must also be Christ-centered in what we do. Christ, therefore, becomes our ultimate example. Christ, therefore, becomes the ultimate individual that is worthy of praise. Christ, then, becomes the one whom we follow in an effort to bring glory and honor to God. So we're Christ-centered. You know, I, uh, I, don't, I don't even remember. I think it was uh, Blackaby who said, and one of the things that has helped him to grow in grace, to grow in his faith, is that no matter what he was reading in the Bible, 
no matter what he was doing during his personal reading time, that he was always reading through the Gospels along with it. So that whatever he was doing, whether he was in the Old Testament or somewhere in the New Testament in one of the letters, he was always in one of the Gospels because that's the place where you see the life of Christ. And ultimately, that's what we're going to be like. Ultimately, that's what we're going to get. How do you know what it means to live a life in the flesh that is honoring to God? Ultimately, the answer to that is in the example of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, he's the only one who ever did that. He's the only one who lived a life that was perfect and completely satisfactory to God. So we bring glory to God, we bring glory to God in the church, and we bring glory to God in Christ Jesus. There's another meaning of this there. And that is this. Ultimately, I cannot, in an ultimate sense, bring glory to God unless I am in Christ. I must be in Christ in order to bring God glory. My life must be hidden in His. My life must be redeemed by His. My life must be shaped, formed by His. My life must be conformed to His. Turn with me to the left and look at Romans chapter 8. Let's just put a finer point on this. Romans chapter 8. And look at verse 28. And it reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. For what? To be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, God called me to Himself, not just so that I could go to heaven when I die. God called me to Himself so that I could go through this process called sanctification. And in this process called sanctification, I am to become more like Christ every day. So, to the degree that I'm yielding to this sanctifying process, to that degree, I am bringing more praise and more glory and more honor to God as I am conformed to the image of Christ. So we bring glory to God. We bring glory to God in the church. And we bring glory to God in Christ. Next, look at what he says. In Christ Jesus, throughout all generations... We bring glory to God multi-generationally. Multi-generationally. Our church's vision. We what? All together now. The kingdom-minded, Christ-exalting, multi-generational community of faith. All generations. In, In one sense, there is the idea here of the truth of God being passed on from generation to generation and us bringing bringing praise and honor to God as we pass on His truth from generation to generation. That is the one sense. And so there's there's the multi-generational aspect of teaching these truths to your children and to your grandchildren. What we're all about here. That's what it means to be a multi-generational community. We We are all about this process of teaching and training parents how 
to be multi-generational in their mindset and multi-generational in this process of discipleship. How do we as parents disciple, discipline, and train our children so that we bring glory and honor to God, not just by our own sanctification, but also through the process of passing on what God has taught us to our children so that the next generation will understand what it means to sing the praises of our God, not just with their lips, but with their life. And so in that sense, it is multi-generational. Throughout all generations. Generation after generation after generation. Which means that if the scriptures here say that I'm to bring glory to God, number one, I'm to bring glory to God in the church, that means it affects the way we do church. I'm to bring glory to God in Christ. That means I have to be in Christ, walking in Christ, being transformed, conformed to the image of Christ in order to bring glory to God. And if it says to all generations, if I am to walk in that, then that means I must have a multi-generational vision. Otherwise, I'm not participating in this doxology if I don't have a multi-generational vision. And one of the things that we've done, unfortunately, in the way that we do church in our culture, is we've completely annihilated multi-generationalism. It, it doesn't exist. It's just not there. Everything is divided up by your generation. There's this second idea. Not just multi-generational in the sense that, you know, here I am with my children and passing this on to my children. But multi-generational in the sense that we are here today representing multi-generations. There are multiple generations represented in this room. I praise God for that. I praise God for the multiple generations that are represented in this room. I praise God that there are people in this room who, who are, you know, perhaps in their... Well, I'm not even going to go there. But there are people in this room, you know, uh, uh, like some of our little ones who are, you know, two and three and four years old, who have the opportunity, because of the way we do church, to rub elbows every week with people who could be their grandparents. Or even their great-grandparents. Not saying any names. That's a beautiful thing, folks. It is a beautiful thing for a child to grow up and say, there are people young and old who worship this God, who love this God, who know this God. In other words, it's not a phase that you go through at a certain point in your life. But it's multi-generational in the sense that whether you're two or 82, you can bring praise and honor and glory to God. And whether you're 2 or 82, you can do it in the same room at the same time. Amen? Here's a final picture. To all generations, forever and ever. God is to be praised. He is to be praised in the church. He is to be praised in Christ. He is to be praised to all generations. And He is to be praised forever and ever. Time without end. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is found in the book of Revelation. Look with me in Revelation. First is simply Revelation 5.
verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, and which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth. Turn with me to chapter 7. And look down at verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne. Around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. God is to be praised forever and ever. Time without end. That's where we end up. That's how this whole thing culminates. With God being praised forever and ever. Amen. God is to be praised. God alone is to be praised. He's intrinsically worthy of our praise. God is to be praised in the church. And God alone is to be praised in the church. God is to be praised in Christ. Which means that we praise the Lord Jesus Christ and we're also sanctified and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, both of which bring praise to God in Christ. God is to be praised throughout all generations, not just all generations, but all peoples. Which is why Jesus said, go and take the gospel to Pentata Ethne, every people group. What's the purpose of this church? Our mission Proclaiming the supremacy of Christ to all men with a view toward biblical conversion and comprehensive discipleship. All men. The Pentateuch ethne. Every people group. Why? Because God is to be worshipped through all generations and from all peoples forever and ever. Time without end. God is to be God alone. As we bow before the Lord, I just want to encourage you to examine your own life. To write your own doxology. Your own word of praise to God. But I don't want you to write your own doxology based on what you think it ought to be 
your own doxology based on where you are right here, right now, this moment in your life. How does your life bring praise, honor, and glory to God? Let's back up even further. Does your life bring praise, honor, and glory to God? Is your life a doxology to God? Because God is to be praised. God is to be praised in the church. God is to be praised in Christ. God is to be praised throughout all generations. God is to be praised forever and ever. If your life is man-centered, it's difficult to write a doxology. If you are not in Christ, it is impossible to write a doxology. And my prayer for you today is that you would address those two issues. Issue number one, whether or not your life is God-centered. Do you see God as existing for your own glory, to meet your needs, and to satisfy your desires? Or do you see yourself as existing for the glory and honor of God? And are you in Christ? Do you have a personal, vibrant, living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of your having understood the gospel and coming to repentance and faith? Because unless and until that occurs in your life, there will be no doxology.